the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to Ridiculous History. Thanks again, as always, for tuning in, folks. Uh, shout out to our super producer, Casey the Crow Pegram. Shout out to our guest producer, Andrew the Raven Howard. Uh, they call me Ben. I, I I didn't think of bird nicknames for the for us. That's that's as far as I got. Uh, you know I'm triggered by bird nicknames, Ben. Thank you for forgoing giving me one. <laughs> of course, Noel, of course. This is uh, this is an interesting episode for both of us today because, as you know, my ride or die, Noel, is, uh, Noel, you're, you're not a fan of birds for some, I would say, some perfectly valid reasons. Well, I mean, it depends. You know, I'm, I think I, it's possible that I have a manufactured, implanted memory of being dive bomb attacked by seagulls at the beach with my grandfather as a youth. But that may or may not have actually happened. It might just be one of the story I tell myself to explain my fear of birds. I'm, I was talking about this with my girlfriend the other night. I think I'm more afraid of like land walking birds that can really come at you, you know, with wobbly goose type necks or like ostriches and stuff. Or a shoebill. Yeah, exactly. Or like an emu or, God forbid, a cassuary. You ever seen those mm-hmm. monsters? Oh, they yeah. can apparently disembowel you with a single claw, like in the Jurassic Park, the book. I didn't make it to the movie. But yeah, they're just kind of like weird dinosaurs. And Ben, I know that you're a fan of the Corvids, and we've talked about this multiple times on this and other shows. Um, I think it's a dream of yours to one day command an army of Corvids that can do your bidding. But you would do stuff for them, too. It would be like a quid pro quo type arrangement. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm fascinated by the study of what is called non-human intelligence, and corvids are brilliant. I I, I just want to hang out with them. I want to have a corvid crew, and I'd prefer <laughs> ravens, but you know I will accept crows. Uh, it <laughs> it the, at the most extreme version, it reminds me of the 
television adaptation of True Blood. Uh, spoilers. There's a weird subplot as the show declined in quality about a vampire who has kind of created this relationship with werewolves. Mm. And it's a symbiotic relationship. And maybe, maybe it would be something like that with crows. But today's episode is about a guy named Dr. T.W. Stallings, who completely, fundamentally disagrees with my, uh, <laughs> with my opinion of crows. No, this guy hated them. Well, I mean, to be fair, Ben, you're not a farmer during the Great Depression. True. Uh, so crows are not really wrecking your shop the way they were uh, Dr. T.W. Stallings and many other folks who were desperately in need of a uh, bountiful harvest, right? So in the 1930s, crows, as in Western civilization in general, outside of, of Ben for the most part, uh, were viewed as disease vectors, you know, often have bad reputations in terms of superstition, like black cats, um, sort of like this uh, concept of uh, the the lore of, the, of the, the crow as being some sort of familiar to like the devil or like, uh, you know, witches or, or warlocks or whatever. But most importantly, they were crop stealers. I think we all know about the, the scarecrow. That's a thing. Probably was uh, successful in varying degrees. you think they would have gotten used to it, them being so smart and all, right, Ben? Yeah, that's the thing. Um, part of the reason that crows and ravens can be such pests is because they are intelligent enough to think ahead and to plan more efficient ways to steal things, basically. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, dude. A, a crow uh, or a raven, you know, any kind of corvid might be scared off by a human-like figure or effigy in a field for a, a short amount of time. But once they realize, hey, this thing looks like a person, but it doesn't move, then it's just another tree, basically. Then they're all about it. Totally. And I think the most recent appearance of Corvids in our podcast life was on a strange news episode of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, where we discussed a study that showed that Corvids actually have something called metacognition, which is something that humans have, which sets us apart from other animals. Metacognition is quite literally thinking about thinking. So to your point, Ben, they can plan, they can observe, and they can change their behavior accordingly, which is not, not something to sneeze at, you know, for a, for a tiny, what, what some people might malign as like bird brains or whatever. You know, that is not a thing with these guys. Right, right. And, and you know, honestly, they are exceptional in the avian field, uh, but they've used their powers for trickery and to get over on humans. So it does make sense that Dr. T.W. Sawlings and many other people in Oklahoma in the 1930s, as he said, would not care for these birds. Uh, it, it's already a very difficult proposition to be a farmer, even if there is not a crushing economic depression underway. So our episode today concerns Dr. Stallings' push throughout the, the state of Oklahoma to get more of his fellow Oklahoma residents to start hunting and eating crows. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and eventually uh, Oklahoma's governor even got in on the mix. Uh, he founded something called the State House Crow Meat Lovers Association. And, you know, Noel, you and I both <laughs> love 
uh, talking about food. We're both adventurous eaters. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to get to... Uh, we, we're going to have to get to some of the problems with eating crow, I think. I think we are. And I got to say, the crow meat lover's pizza sounds like the worst pizza ever of all time. Oh, God, yeah. Unless it's spoiled meat and it's a pizza just for crows. Uh, yeah, maybe with also, like, milk curds sprinkled on top or something. <laughs> um, you know, we got to remember, though, uh, in addition to all this crow hate, you know, literally just wanting to kill them because they were screwing up people's crops, it was the Great Depression, and meat was scarce. So any meat you could get would be considered like a premium, kind of. Like that even, like, you know, typically people were subsisting on things like, you know, dry goods, like beans and pasta and, and uh, you know, hominy, for example, like in the South, right? Mm-hmm. So meat would have been like a special treat, kind of. Even crow meat. So we're going to get again, we're going to get into some of the ways this was prepared, but let's just backtrack to 1936 when the residents of Tulsa, Oklahoma, began to kind of jump on board this crow-eating bandwagon. The butchers, local butchers, would send their kids out into the fields to kill and collect crow carcasses. They got a dollar fifty. At first I was reading this and I was like, oh, a dollar fifty a crow, that seems reasonable. No, it was a dollar fifty a dozen of crows, which is uh yeah, and they would bring them back, chop their heads off, truss them up and serve them, I imagine. However, again, we're going to get into some recipes later. And this even became like, remember how when like lobster was like trash food mm-hmm. and like like servants even petitioned the government to force their masters not to serve them lobster more than three times a week or something like that? The crow was starting to occupy something of a, of a you know, space like that in that it was going to be, uh, it was suggested as being like a staple food in hospitals and just kind of like, again, like just the go-to meat of the era. Yeah, yeah. And so you can get a perspective on how these kids were incentivized to hunt crows in batches of a dozen at a time. Our inflation calculator tells us that $1 in 1936 is equivalent to just a little bit over $19 today. So mm. there, there was some money for some kids there. Sure. Yeah, but you're right. People were... Embracing this idea on multiple organizational levels, uh, one science teacher in Oklahoma, Miss Maud Firth, even established a class exclusively about how to cook crows. That's a that's a niche education right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Dr. T.W. Stallings, himself not a farmer, uh, he was the county health superintendent. And like you said, Noel, he was a vociferous, self-proclaimed crow hater. He said that crows were a serious problem for Oklahoma farmers, a problem that had only gotten worse in the years leading up to the mid-1930s. And so he had this Bernays vibe about him, this Edward Bernays vibe. He said, all right, we're going to get the hearts and minds of our fellow Oklahomans focused on exterminating and eating crows so that we're not just killing them for no reason. And we're going to do this he said in a light bulb moment, through a series of what I will call crow banquets. So mm. we're going to trick people. <laughs> we're going to. Yikes. No. Because no. pe- people love that, right? So we're going to we're gonna invite all these folks over. We're going to cook them a nice sumptuous meal because it's hard to turn down a hot meal in the Depression. And mm. then after they've eaten their fill and they're talking about how, how good this was, this meal was, we're going to tell them that they had, in fact, 
dined on crows. And he had a recipe for it, too. It doesn't sound half bad, uh, to be honest. I mean, crow meat is notorious for being dry and stringy. I've heard it described as tasting kind of livery. But at the same time, like I like liver. I like liver and onions. I wouldn't eat, like, liver prepared many other ways. But if it's, like, fried and, like, you know, rolled in a nice gravy— it can, it can be pretty palatable uh, with, you know, mushrooms and onions or something like that. But they were doing something very similar with this. They were uh, coating it, you know, plucking them, obviously, coating them with lard, uh, which would, you know, help keep them moister. And then cooking them in a sealed cast iron pan, likely kind of a slow heat um, so that it would kind of stay as tender as possible. And, uh, you know seasoned and added uh, celery and likely carrots and maybe some other things like you might do with a, you know, a roasted chicken perhaps. Um, and then of course, finishing off with lots of gravy, three crows to a person does a meal make and Stallings really was into this. He had his reasons in terms of just like thinking about it in terms of uh, public health, I suppose, which is kind of weird considering that, you know, these crows are considered diseased and vectors for disease. And he was the head of the health department and he was a big proponent for people eating these. I wonder how they tested them to make sure they weren't like contaminated or something. Ah, well, that's another, that's a story for another day. <laughs> he's, he's kind of, if, if crows in Oklahoma in the 1930s are Smurfs, then this guy Stallings is definitely their Gargamel. Yes. Right. Oh, yes. Uh, yes, it, it's, it's weird. They got press for this too in the 1930s. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reported this enthusiasm for consuming crow in 1935. In 1936, Atlanta Constitution, which now exists as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, reported how the then-governor, E.W. Marland, and a group of state officials went to one of these crow banquets, and Marlin was so impressed the story goes that that caused him to establish this state house crow meat lovers association and you know crows are omnivorous right in many ways they're vacuum cleaners if you end up feeding uh, a crow I'll always be cautious about feeding a wild animal it's usually not a great idea but if you end up feeding a crow the main thing you have to look out for is not feeding them stuff that has a lot of salt but if you end up eating a crow you're right, Noel. They they've got a gamey taste. They can get grainy and stringy and tough, but they're they're dark meat. So if you prepare them correctly, from what I understand, I haven't done this, they can end up tasting a little bit like duck or goose, which can be you know pretty delectable. Uh huh. I I, I, def- I don't think I've ever had goose. Uh, but I can't, I always think of that scene in The Office where it's a Christmas episode and Dwight finds a, a goose that's been hit on the side of the road and brings it into the office, you know, and he's supposedly going to truss it up and, you know, clean it right there and cook it for, uh, so he's like, it's a Christmas miracle. Uh, and of course, uh, they make him take it outside. But duck, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it, it is the darker of the dark meat. Like if, if you think dark meat chicken tastes gamey, Duck is probably going to be extra that thing. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's also fatty, which bothers some people. But if you're into cooking, one thing you can do with duck is cook it on a rack and then under the rack, slice up some potatoes and put them underneath the duck so the drippings drip down onto the potatoes. Then you get like duck fat fried potatoes, which has a real rich flavor to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of which, there were a lot of sacrifices that had to be made in the Great Depression. Like instead of butter, they used drippings or fat. So probably having fatty 
you know, dark meat was probably a good thing because it made for more drippings they could then use in place of butter, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a great book that details this called Paradox of Plenty, A Social History of Eating in Modern America. This is the kind of specific reference work that I love, just like the Mm -hmm. Kralansky's book about salt. Oh, Ben, I had to bring up to some friends the other day uh, your fascination with very specific books. And if I'm not mistaken, you said you own a book exclusively on halibut? Cod. Yes. Cod. Okay, my bad. I thought Because halibut came up and I was like, pretty sure my partner <laughs> has a book exclusively on halibut. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, I, I would, by the way, I would totally buy and devour a book about halibut. I just mean, for the halibut? Just for the halibut. So in this book, by Harvey Levenstein, he talks about the privation people face because for a long, long time, and still to a degree here in the States, eating is a social opportunity. It's when you see your friends, it's when you spend quality time with your family. And it was tough for people to adjust to having to change this pattern during the Depression. Instead of three meals a day, you might have two. Like you said, Noel, uh, people went back to very affordable grains and carb staples, right? Cornmeal, pasta, beans, pancakes. Uh, the most common complaint people had at this time was that they were they were getting tired of eating mm-hmm. of eating the same stuff day in day out. Meats, fruits, a lot of other delicacies like sweets had pretty much disappeared due to either scarcity or affordability. At this point, like there were riots in small towns across the country where people were literally shouting, we want food. We will not let our children starve. Yeah, at, th- at least they weren't shouting, we want more variety. <laughs> right. We will not eat beans again, because that'd be a little, I mean, at least they had something. No, it's true. I mean, the people that had the beans and the pasta and if they were lucky, eggs, which really did take the places of meat, you know, because meats were just so hard to come by. They kind of had it good, you know, but Ooh. it was uh, it was pretty widespread. And of course, there were, you know, the 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 swells in their ivory towers that probably had more than the rest of us. But yeah, in general, people were were having to really subsist and then kind of scrap to to get by. Not to mention that's the, that's the big thing about the Great Depression, right? It was uh, it was a perfect storm of horrible, horrible things happening. Uh, one of which was, uh, it would have exacerbated the issue of the crows, you know, um, attacking the crops. It was drought that already dried up crops all over the South. Sharecroppers in Alabama, they referred to their diet as the 3M diet, which was salt pork, it was the M meat, cornmeal and molasses. Oh, why the molasses? Is that dessert? Was that like the pudding cup of the Great Depression? So there were things called bread lines, which I believe is very similar to a soup kitchen, Ben, if I'm not mistaken. Like a bread line is like a free handouts for for people in desperate situations or or who are uh, homeless. Yeah, it's for people who found themselves houseless or they were unable to find work. That was the Mm -hmm. majority. The majority of people were unemployed and fighting to stay in their homes or in their towns or with their relatives. And so you would wait in the in these long literal lines to get some sort of sustenance and it would right. be usually some kind of bread especially in the north and 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 like a lot of uh gangsters and criminals like Pablo Escobar for example made a name for himself by giving food and and clothes and things to uh, less fortunate people who lived around the area of Medellin where he did business uh, Al Capone 
ran a bread line, you know, to Ooh. kind of, I think, probably engender some positive feelings among the people that he, like, you know, was around in his in his actual neighborhoods. Yeah, like the Yakuza helping disaster-stricken areas of Japan after earthquakes or other natural right. disasters. Do you know they've also been involved in organizing Halloween things? <laughs> I don't doubt it. It's so weirdly endearing, but maybe a story for another day. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You know, it's interesting because I have some roots in Appalachia and I can confirm from accounts of ancestors some of the horror stories about what occurred for those folks in in that time. Like one strategy was that children would eat on alternate days. I had a relative who would tell my parents about times where they were convinced that they were going to starve only to have dug up an old frozen patch of potatoes and eaten those potatoes that were frozen in the ground, uh, which gave them just enough sustenance to soldier on. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, urban areas, rural areas alike, they were all crushed by this. 90,000 businesses completely shut their doors. 15 million people lose their jobs, get their wages cut in half. If you read The Grapes of Wrath by Steinbeck, 
he's not so exaggerating. Good. No, no, it's so good. And it's, it's one of the first books that I was like, oh, this is a painting a picture. This is how it really was. It just feels like you're there. And yeah, I mean, spoiler alert. No, nah, I'm not going to do it. But at the end, there's something just absolutely heartbreaking that a character has to do to survive. <sighs> yeah, yeah. That is a harrowing book. And it's based on this period of time in a, mm. in a realistic way. 20,000 people that we know of committed suicide, which means certainly more. 10,000 banks collapsed. The effects of the Great Depression remain in the modern day in, in a lot of ways. And that's that's the context in which this idea of eating crow occurs. Like people are going, especially in rural areas, people are saying, look, if I don't have two nickels to rub together to go to a deli, well, then I'll just do what my grandparents or great-grandparents did, and I'll just hunt game. You know, the way like people in rural areas will still hunt game for a reliable mm -hmm. source of nutrition today. Absolutely. Yeah. And crow became an alternative viable protein. There was not one person in this area of Oklahoma who said, mm, nah, I'm too good for it. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was, it was a kind of two-pronged thing, right, where it was giving them some variation in their diets or perhaps the only thing they had. You know, that certainly could have been the case for many. But it also was helping out the farmers and potentially staving off that further loss of, of, uh, of productivity to, to, their, to their crops. So, you know, it seemed like kind of helping out your neighbor in addition to, like, getting a, a meal in you. But this was not just an Oklahoma thing, by the way. Uh, it, it started to really spread. Like, you saw reports out of Kansas, Georgia, Washington State, Illinois, reporting this kind of surge in public interest in eating these birds. In August of 1937, approximately two Americans per day wrote to the Department of Agriculture asking for details on, quote, how crows might be cooked, stewed, fried, or roasted, and how crow broth can be made. Probably, do you think that's, the, that's a question for the Department of Ag? Seems more like a good housekeeping kind of letter, you know, or like an Emily Post situation. Well, it was, it was a different time. You know, people in general wrote letters more often, but, mm. but, uh, I, I believe you are correct. They eventually probably had to put an intern on that. The fact that crows were plentiful in Oklahoma and many other parts of the country, uh, was helpful to Stalin's cause. Crow hunting clubs started popping up and there was sort of a, um, a war, maybe campaign is a better word, for public uh, favor to this approach of eating crow. Because in addition to having all these heavy, dark, folkloric associations or connotations, crows are scavengers. And so they were known to eat garbage. And so people thought, look, if I'm eating a crow, am I kind of just eating garbage with an extra step? Is that just like eating trash with extra steps? And, uh, and yes that, and no, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. well, catfish is good. And that's, that's very similar. No, it's very true. And so, so I, yeah. But I would also say yes and no in that they're not clean. You know what I mean? Like you'd really have to, but I guess you would boil them probably to get the feathers to pop off and then pluck them like you do. So I suppose they're being like sanitized, but still just the whole concept just really gives me the creeps. Yeah. And, you know, to be clear, I said there was no one in Oklahoma at the time who automatically said they were too good for it. 
but this was not everybody's favorite new food. And there were a couple of people outside of Oklahoma who were just like, forget this. We'll, we'll get to them. Uh, but opinions vary on how this tasted. For a lot of people, it was a curiosity or a kind of a desperate measure, or it was a novelty. And like we said, they are gamey, they, they are dark meat. So a lot of the recipes that you see are similar to recipes that you can see for other gamey, tasty meat. You have as much like seasoning as possible, mm-hmm. put in the mix to make it make it go down a little bit smoother. Sure. I mean, you know, like I love cooking with chicken thighs, but it's got to be really, really well seasoned. Whereas a chicken breast, you know, you could probably eat it with just a little salt and pepper and it tastes pretty good. And then to me, the chicken thigh is the perfect level of gamey. I love this too, by the way, but I don't think we mentioned some folks, they, they were really trying to zhuzh up the idea of the crow. Yeah. So there were even people that referred to them as black partridges, which <laughs> uh, is just kind of like, you know, a crow by any other name still tastes like crow. Uh, but there was this chef at the Hotel Sherman named Fernand Pointreau. Pointreau. Yeah, that makes sense. Pointreau. Who, it was a very fancy hotel in 1941, and he uh, had a dish called Crow en Casserole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, if I may, I'm just going to read a little bit of the recipe. It sounds This excellent. sounds great, actually. This recipe is specific enough to cook it. I think so. You skinned and dressed, like we said, put in a pan with butter, uh, add garlic, then a third cup of white wine. Which and most then- people wouldn't have. They would not. That's what I'm saying. This is like total uh, shabby chic kind of situation, Ooh. right? Uh, strong veal gravy, which is already going to have a little bit of a livery kind of gamey quality to it, right? Mm-hmm. Three tablespoons. And then soybean sauce. Does that mean soy sauce? Literally? Yes. Yeah, it does. yeah, I think that's what that means. Poured over the crow meat, and then the birds are cooked in a covered dish for two hours. Again, that low and slow. It's got to be. Young birds take, this goes a quote directly from the recipe, young birds taken in the spring require just one hour, uh, Chef Pointreau said. And then, of course, mushrooms, small cubes of fried salt pork, and small glazed onions. Mm. Sounds pretty good. And people who tried this fancy, like, elevated cuisine approach overwhelmingly liked it. People had said, you know, this surprisingly, I like it a little bit better than wild duck and it's tasty and it's deliciously prepared. But as we said, some people, not in Oklahoma, but in other places, felt like they were already too good for this and they looked down their nose at it. There was one chef in Atlanta, 1936, who said, roast crow, bah, B-A-H. People used to say that. Bah. (laughs) Bah. Yeah. Where's the humbug? Folks just don't go in for that kind of meat. So far as I'm concerned, eating crow will continue to be nothing but a political expression. Interesting. (laughs) That's a really, no, no. I I think we've, we, I think we've been (laughs) sort of alluding to this uh, in that it was almost like a patriotic act to kill the crows, at least, because you were kind of helping your, your neighbor, your farming neighbors. But also, it was kind of an act of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, societal kind of like, it was sort of like an act of bringing everyone together mm-hmm. behind, like, a common enemy, right? In a time where people felt desperately out of control. There's an account from um, the Oklahoman, from a woman named Sue Simpson, 
who cooked this meat for her husband talking about, uh, quote, feeling that it might be the patriotic thing to do. I bought some and baked crow for dinner. As I recall, there was not enough meat on the bones to make it worthwhile. I do not remember how it tasted, but I do know that I did try to eat it. My husband said that he did not mind eating crow. That's in quotes if he had done something to apologize for, but did not expect to see it served at dinner and to please not do it again. <laughs> right. Like, you know, it takes a lot to make a marriage work. So yeah, that guy was on his P's and Q's. It, it's true. This was a trend that came about of desperation. It had this patina of patriotism and it was meant as a way of combating loss of crops. But after times became less desperate, this trend fizzled. There was one person who didn't give up on it, and you can guess who he is, fellow ridiculous historians, Dr. T.W. Stallings himself. Right. He was yep. full Gargamel. As they say in Gattaca, he saved nothing for the swim back. Uh, he was, as late as 1947, he was finding every reporter that would listen to him and extolling the virtues of eating crows. I wonder if he had a situation where he got like attacked by one or something as a kid. And that's where we are today. If you go to almost any restaurant in the U.S., it will be virtually impossible to find a genuine like dish made of crow. It's even less common than turtle soup, which we talked about in the past, which yep. is you know mainly common in New Orleans, Maryland and parts of DC now. Yeah. And then you'll, you know, you'll, you'll go to some fancy restaurants where you'll see things like squab or other like gamey, weird, small birds on the menu as kind of a flex. Like, look, look at how amazing our cooking is that we can make this weird trash bird taste good. But I don't even know if like, you know, uh, Heston Blumenthal would try messing with crow. You know? <laughs> Maybe our friend Richard Blaze. Maybe he might take a shot at it, but yeah, <laughs> but the but most you're right, most folks won't. This has become kind of a closed chapter in the history book, but it leaves us with another conversation that we've talked about a little bit in the past. There are so many somewhat arbitrary cultural taboos about what is or is not fit to eat here in the U.S. and in the West overall. And if there hadn't been the Great Depression, Crows would have been fine. People wouldn't have been trying to eat them. And the, what is now referred to as kind of the, the crow craze raises questions about what makes us consider something edible or something disgusting and how culturally changeable or fluid these things might be. Like that, like nutria is another example or um, raccoons or... I think everybody's fine with eating alligators now, right? All it, it, does, it does seem that way, but it, there's even a broader conversation than that. And we've talked about this too. It's like the whole socially acceptable line for like, it's okay to eat rabbit to some, but definitely not okay to eat cat, you know, mm. uh, at least in, in the United States. Crow just seems like it's nasty. And probably not necessary, and and really just probably limited to an act of desperation. There's a really gross scene in uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. You might rem I remember. I love it. Ben. Fight like a crow. Fight like a crow, but he eats a crow, and it's like tainted or something, and he starts like getting violently ill. Frank's character, your Frank, uh, the uh, Danny DeVito's character, mm -hmm. and I think he almost starts like hallucinating off of the, the rotten crow or the tainted crow or something like that, but. Yeah, it definitely does not seem like, I mean, I think even animals would probably, 
steer away from it if they could. It, it's funny because the whole time we were researching this episode, I just I kept rewatching clips of the fight milk uh, episode of Always Sunny in Philadelphia yes. with like crow eggs and then some kind of nutritional substance and a ton of like vodka, I think. It was disgusting. Yeah. But uh, what has that show not given us? It hasn't given us something that we are going to give you now, folks. This had to be occurring to a lot of our fellow listeners today. Is this the origin of the old saying to eat crow? Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Luckily, according to our good friend, Mangesh Hadakatur, co-founder of Mental Floss, and a guy who actually hangs out with us, mm -hmm. it's not true. It's also the perfect time to... Wish him the absolute best in his new venture. You were very sad to lose him uh, at the company as a colleague, um, but we will remain dear friends. Been been with him for a long time, and he's a lovely guy. But yeah, he wrote this article himself back uh, when he was still at Mental Floss, and he traced the origin of the expression to eat crow somewhere completely different. Yeah, yeah. So when, when you say to eat crow, it kind of has this feeling of like... Um, other expressions like, oh, he had egg on his face or, uh, oh, they had to eat humble pie. To eat crow means to humiliate oneself. And there's a legend about it that dates back to 1812. During a truce in the War of 1812, apparently a guy from New England walked over to the British camp 
to do some hunting. And he got irritated because he's like, ah, we're in the middle of a war. I can't find any deer or rabbit or what have you. I'm just going to shoot the first thing I see. And the first thing he saw was a crow and he shot it. But a British guy, a British officer heard the gunshot, right? Yes, that's right. And the British officer gave the American props on his marksmanship and then asked him to see uh, the weapon, to hold the weapon. Um, with which he had uh, he had made this uh, crack shot, and uh, <laughs> being a bit on the gullible side, um, the American handed over the weapon. After which, of course, the British officer turned it on him and yelled at him, and basically humiliated him and forced him to eat a bite of the crow that he had just killed. Ugh, uncooked. Yeah, feathers and all. Yeah. Uh, and the guy tried to beg, but, you know, what could he do? Uh, the British dude had his gun, so he ate a piece of the crow. The officer returned his firearm, said, okay, go home. Get out of here. Away with you. Uh, and before the British guy could leave, the New Englander was very angry, turned the gun on the officer and made him eat the rest of the bird. Also uncooked, also unplucked. Uh, the story concludes that the British officer was furious. Next day, he went to the American camp and he demanded retribution and satisfaction. The U.S. commanding officers had the soldier brought to him and they said, you know, have you seen this guy before, this British dude? And the soldier was trying to lie, prevaricate, but he couldn't. So eventually he stuttered, yes, Captain, I dined with him yesterday. And that's the, <laughs> that's the joke. I've heard, you may uh, have heard other versions of this as a joke. I heard one that was pretty popular in the military about this occurring in um, the Sahara or the Middle East. But it was a much filthier version because it was like the military version. It wasn't crow they were eating. Yeah. I don't know. I, I love this account. This is a great story. I still have to wonder if if it's not a little in dispute as to whether it came from this or the idea of like eating crow as being sort of like uh, the worst case scenario, you know, like as we use it in terms of like having to eat our words when we've said something stupid. So I don't know, this, this does, this does hold up. Like basically uh, the Brits should not have given that gun back. What do you think was going to happen? Yeah, you're right. That's a behavior that makes me think it is legend. We know that, the exact origin, the real origin of the idiom is is largely unknown today, but it first probably went in print somewhere in the 1850s, and it was also a story about a dim-witted American dude. So we have to eat our crow in that regard. But Noel, what an episode! I um, you know, I feel bad for the crows at that time, but. They were being a, they were a threat to the lives of these farmers, not just their livelihoods. And also, as we had talked about uh, with our pal Andrew the Raven Howard uh, just before recording, there is this slippery slope people get into when they say you shouldn't dine on intelligent animals, right? Because yeah, cows are intelligent, pigs are intelligent, crows certainly are. Crows certainly are, you know, and fortunately for them, they're probably the least delicious of the intelligent animals. Uh, doubt people are going to stop eating cow and pig anytime soon. Um, cephalopods is another thing. Uh, I don't know. I just, I haven't finished it, but I started watching that uh, documentary, My Octopus Teacher. Yeah. 
it's so good. Yes. A, it's beautifully shot. It's a wonderful story about this guy that just like, you know, basically becomes a sea creature for lack of a better way of describing it. Um, but when you see the playfulness of these creatures and then how they kind of connect with this guy, you'd probably be hard pressed to slice up a tentacle and dip it in soy sauce again. Yeah. Yeah. Which might be, which might be a story for another day. But as he said, octopus also is delicious. Um, and I say that as a huge fan of uh, the intelligence of the octopus. I've, I've tried to remove them from my diet, which, you know, is luckily for people like us living so far inland, it's not too difficult for us to remove <laughs> octopus from our right. diet. Uh, it would be a lot tougher to remove like chicken wings. Because this is Atlanta. They're everywhere. Oh, I don't know about you, Noel. I am getting a little bit hungry. Not quite famished. I think we fly like a crow uh, into our next episode. But I, how about this? Folks, what's the weirdest thing that you have eaten? What's the one thing, uh, if you have one, that you've always wanted to try? And then perhaps most directly, would you eat a crow? Why or why not? Oh, don't let other crows see you eating a crow. They are intelligent enough to know what is happening. They are also smart enough to remember your face and teach their friends what you look like. They will mess you up. They will come for you. <laughs> they will come for you. There is a study that proves it. There are actually a couple of studies and anecdotes that prove it. But thanks, as always, uh, to our super producer, Casey Pegram, to our guest producer, Andrew Howard. And you know what I was thinking, though? I was in conversation about this earlier. We, we need to give a much-deserved shout-out to our graphic designer, Pam Peacock, who made our logo for the show that Rasputin logo that's all yeah. Pam it is all Pam uh, and we've got some surprises coming in the very near future uh, <laughs> which involve Pam uh, and I'm gonna leave it at that <laughs> it's true it's a you know we're, we're two guys who are literally paid to read about weird stuff and then talk uh, for a living so it it, it, it is been somewhat difficult for us to keep some of these secrets, but I think we're doing an okay job so far. I know, but don't you love that? And when I say love, I obviously mean, hey, when people on the internet are like, guys, got some big stuff coming. Can't talk about it yet, but trust me, it's going to pop off. Okay. It's going to be awesome. We didn't quite do it that uh, egregiously, but you know, it is what it is. But seriously, stay tuned. Big stuff on the horizon. Uh, in the meantime, huge thanks to super producer Casey Pegram, to guest producer Andrew Ahow, the crow, the raven, the blackbird raven McKnight Howard, uh, the third. Is he a third? He's baby. He might as well be. And are, and are I hope you're not alluding to my tweet where I said I had a difficult time with an episode of stuff they don't want you to know that I couldn't talk about. It's no. <laughs> okay. No, 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 good. Good. Well, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, oh gosh. Yeah. That was a real. That was a real weird one that we just did earlier this week. But yes. Thanks, of course, to. Alex the Ephemerist Williams. You like Ephemerist? I like Ephemerist. It's very good. Uh, and big thanks to Eve's Jeffcoat. Uh, big, big thanks to Christopher Hasiotis, both of whom shall be returning soon. And let's have a big old caca for our number one raven, 
Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister. I don't want him to be a raven. I like ravens too much. Uh, let's make him... And crows are cool, too. Magpie? What kind of bird would he be if he was a bird? I I don't know. I don't know for birds, Ben. You're asking the wrong guy. Any 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 bird that I associated him, in my mind, would be an insult. So, um, <laughs> Fair How enough. about a cockatiel? I like a cockatiel. I could they've, see they've that. Got a, they've got a cool little plume, you know, on their headdress. I could see that. I could see that. And that feels like a compliment. For some reason, a cockatiel does get his vibe. What are we talking about? Uh, tune in to uh, an upcoming episode of Ridiculous History to hear for yourself. Mm-hmm. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my! Look at that! He is! And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win! Unbelievable! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. 